0: From Calvary Church of Santa Ana, this is the Calvary Life Podcast, the show where we share stories, laugh together, and have discussions about faith, life, and God with people from Calvary Church. Here's your host, Eric Wakeling.
1: All right, welcome to the Calvary Life Podcast. I'm Eric Wakling, and I am very excited today to have uh, with me here John and Lori Stewart. How are you guys doing today? Doing what, great, Eric.
0: Yeah, great. Thanks for having us.
1: Awesome. It is great to have you. And uh, as you can hear, that they have the same last name. This is a married couple, and uh, so we're we're here to do a little marriage counseling just over the you know over the podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> biggest issue between you guys? No, just kidding. Okay.
0: So. <laughs> John, you didn't know I said, yeah, pop.
1: You can do this in half an hour, though. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, no, but uh, actually, you guys are people who are, you're both attorneys, you're both um, experts in apologetics, I would say, and uh, also speak and write about all of this kind of stuff, and you're members of Calvary Church. So we always like to ask people first, like, what's your Calvary
2: origin story? How'd you come? When'd you come? How's that work? Well, Eric's looking at me, so I guess I have to start. <laughs> So the first time I came to Calvary Church, I was 10 years old, and that would have been around 1961. Okay. And I actually attended a vacation Bible school here and went to church a couple of times with my parents in the old days. Then fast forward uh, many, many years later when I came to the Lord when I was about 18, and Michael Samzik was the pastor, and I dropped in with my brother Don, Uh, just to talk to him, because we were really interested in Christianity, and he gave us some direction, steering. And I actually came on a Monday night to hear live Jay Vernon McGee, the great Bible teacher who does the Through the Bible radio. And Mm -hmm. I remember my brother and I and the janitor were the last three people left with Jay Vernon McGee, because he was graciously would answer our questions on the way out. Fast forward again, about dozen years or so after that, I actually spoke here when they had prophecy conferences in the late 80s, early 90s. And um, then... And those were huge. Those were a big deal. You know, I remember a packed house in the old, what's now the Sam's Vic Chapel. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Lori and I moved to Iowa about oh, eight years ago. Okay. When we moved back to California. Uh, we looked around and... The Lord led us to Calvary Church, so here we are. Uh, well, we're
1: super happy to have you here. Uh, it's really great. So it's amazing that you were around for some of that, uh, some of those really kind of fun heyday things here at Calvary when you think about uh, being around with, hanging out with Michael Samsvik and J. Vernon McGee. Most people, there's a lot of people who think he's still alive even though he's passed on because he's still on the radio, right? And uh, <laughs> so that's so cool that yeah, right. you got some real time uh, with him. Um, okay, so... First of all, you're both attorneys, mm-hmm. right? And, and and is that like your main kind of the main breadwinning thing that you guys do is is attorneys now or a little bit of both?
0: Yeah, we're still into it. I would say neck deep. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, it. yeah. Um, I practice law full time still okay. working for a, a, a law firm uh, full time. So full time, you know, in the law practice is it's a lot. A lot. Yeah, yeah probably 60 hours a week or so. I teach law school as well over here at Trinity Law School, so I teach legal research and writing. Uh, I've designed some online courses for their Master's of Legal Studies programs, Uh, but that still is primarily what I do as my day job. And then John's been trying to retire from the practice of law for a long time. I keep trying to <laughs> nudge him out of the, to fully retire from the practice so that he can just get back and do ministry full right. time. But it's uh, it's been hard for him to let go of. So he's kind of has one foot in still the law and one foot in ministry.
2: Well, and uh, Lori and I, of course, uh, we've traveled the world. We've done lots and lots of mission trips. I've probably been to Africa about almost 20 times now. Lori's been with me almost every time. Hmm. Also, uh, India and and Malaysia and Indonesia, places like that. The problem is if you're going to practice law full-time for somebody else like Lori's doing now, it's pretty tough to get two or three weeks off to do those mission trips. Right. I've tried to set my schedule so that I can actually, when the doors open up, attend and and make those trips. So, Lord willing, uh, although both of us still, we keep our finger in the law with the allied, uh, what's it it called? Alliance Defending Freedom. Freedom. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Alliance Defending Freedom. Thank you. I couldn't think of the name of that. (laughs) And we were heavily involved in that years ago, dealing with uh, the marriage issue in California. And we considered that just an extension of our ministry. Wherever God can use us to bring a Christian worldview or answers to the world's questions they're asking, we want to be there.
1: Right. And it makes sense to me, kind of like uh, Jay Warner Wallace, who brings his experience as a cold case detective into apologetics. I'm sure you bring your experience as lawyers into, into apologetics. And I mean, you know, Defense, bringing a defense. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, now, John, as you can probably tell everybody listening is his voice sounds a little, I think, more ready for radio than than uh, than mine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, he you you were involved, too, with like the Bible Answer Man show. Right. With. Were, were right. You, and then also even with your own shows on KKLA and KBRT. Um, t- take us back a little
2: bit, right, oh, to that, some of that. That's a trip down memory lane.
1: Uh, <laughs> I know. Okay.
2: <laughs> right out of law school, I started on the radio on KBRT, which the host of the afternoon show there was Rich Bueller, and he was sort of the pioneer for at least for California for talk radio. I remember I listened to it all the time in backseat of my parents' car. Oh, <laughs> ah, yes. Wow. Yep. And he uh, actually had an opening because Walter Martin was doing a one hour a day, one day a week show for KBRT, and he jumped over to Salem Broadcasting to do a full-time Bible Answer Man national show. That left a gap for somebody to do this show called Let's Talk About the Bible. And they tried me out, liked what they heard, ended up giving me my own Sunday show. And then from that, Walter Martin approached me and said, hey, uh, my board says I need a co-host. Would you come and co-host the Bible Answer Man? Well, it didn't take me long to say yes to that (laughs) one, uh, because Walter was a fellow that I grew up listening to, one of these as would be the case in my life, where these are, to me, giants of the yeah, faith. Absolute legend. And, I, and yes. then I end up becoming, on a first-name basis, on colleagues with these. I'm thinking, who in the world am I to have that opportunity? But that was, that was great. So from that, doing that, perhaps a year and a half or two years, KKLA in Los Angeles wanted to go to a talk format, and this was mm-hmm. around 1988, before your time. Whoa, 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 whoa. Sort of. I was 14. Okay, there you
1: go.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you had to listen to me also. Yeah, exactly. So and and did that for a number of years, uh, afternoon drive for KKLA, and then uh, a couple of years for KBRT, uh, Southern California, and just really thoroughly enjoyed it because I got to talk about so many issues that affect Christians. And it's an opportunity to talk to non-Christians in a way where... They don't feel threatened. Mm -hmm. And perhaps, Eric, the best compliments I would get would be when someone would call in and say, John, I'm not a Christian, but I really like your show because you're very fair and I'm paying attention. I'm thinking, okay, there's the hook. If we love people, if we talk truth and don't try to beat up on them, hey, we might win them over through friendly persuasion. And presenting a good case for Christianity, Yeah, absolutely. And I bet even even though you had to be at a pretty like high point of your
1: game to just even have that role, uh, I bet that was such a sharpening thing every day to have to be on your toes with a call-in show, just to be able to talk to people. I mean, I really had to be able to be ready to give an answer. <laughs>
0: He's well, right. a genius. He just yeah. can remember the most amazing things, Eric. That's so
2: great. I'd have to say that having a good memory, good recall certainly helps. Yes, and having memorized scripture. Uh, and I tell people it's something that really any 12 year old could do with about 30 years of experience and foreign degrees. So it does help that I've been, had the blessing of going through Biola and Talbot and law school. So I, I do have enough training in the past that I should be able to say something that makes sense. Yeah, well, that's good. That's but to good. be
0: fair to John, I, his Sunday school class asked me once, this was a few years ago, when I subbed for him because he was sick one day, I was teaching, and they asked me, Now now tell us, does he study really hard all the time or does he just naturally know this? And I said, well, it's a combination of both. I mean, he does have an amazing recall ability. Which I mean, he has a much better memory than I do, but he also does put in the time and does a lot of study and his own hmm. his own digging, mining for the gold, so to speak.
1: Yeah, it's so great. And then you're no slouch yourself, though, right, Lori? Oh. So you might not want to say that back, but I'm sure John will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh,
0: I have different gifts. Let's just say that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you're involved in this. I mean, you've uh, you you are you have this women in apologetics conference that you're that you lead that you got going, right? So tell well, us a, it's l- a
0: team women. I'll tell okay. you. Just amazing women. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm blessed they asked me to be the president of, of the Women in Apologetics, but um, I'll tell you a little bit about how yeah, I kind please. of even got into that. So as John mentioned, he, we have been traveling around, you know, quite a few conferences, and so people would ask me to speak on a variety of topics. So mm-hmm. I started speaking on prayer because I had done my own research just on why do we pray, how pray, you know, does prayer even matter? So I was just blessed to be able to talk about that. And then I started talking kind of about women's issues and maybe the Curse of Eve and what do I see in terms of how is that translated to issues that we see facing women today. Hmm. And so we would go specifically to apologetics conferences, and I was teaching on conflict resolution because I do a lot of Christian alternative dispute resolution, which is helping Christians be able to resolve their conflict outside of the courtroom, whether it's Um, marriages that are failing and going through a divorce, child custody issues, whether it's estate planning issues, whether it's employer-employee issues, whatever it is. You know, 1 Corinthians 6, trying to find another way for Christians to be able to resolve their conflict outside of the courtroom. So I would speak on those issues, but there were women coming up to me at these conferences, and I wasn't speaking on apologetics topics, but they were coming up to me and asking (laughs) me their apologetics questions. And I thought, where are the women who are speaking into this and who are teaching and leading. And I was kind of complaining about it. One particular conference in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and I think Frank Turk and Jay Warner Wallace were there, and I was kind of complaining to them, where are the women, guys? And they said, well, Lori, maybe you should consider doing this. Huh. So it took a couple of years for me to real. Really pray through that because I, I didn't. I already had my JD degree. I'm thinking, why do I want to go back and get a master's in Christian apologetics and study it formally? But eventually, I really sensed God was saying, "I'll take care of you. We'll we'll get through this." Hmm. So I um, researched the programs and found that Biola's. Talbot's program for Christian apologetics is probably the premier program I still think it is maybe I'm just biased but I still think it's a premier program for I'm Christian apologetics <laughs> uh, so I just graduated there in December it, it was a slow ride for me going I'm sure part-time. while a full-time
1: practicing attorney you gotta <laughs> yeah go slow yeah. yeah
0: crazy hard yeah. hard thing to do so I don't recommend it for everybody Uh, But while I was even at Biola studying Christian apologetics, I I took one class in particular because it was the only one taught by a woman because the rest Mm. of the classes were all taught by men. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to learn from women as well. Nothing against men, but I wanted to be able to uh, learn from women as well. And the one class where I had this gal, she ended up not teaching the class. They had a guy come in and teach the live class. So I was kind of... Uh, teasing, half teasing, half complaining to Craig Hazen and uh, you know Sean McDowell and uh, Clay Jones, the other professor. Yeah. Where are the women teaching? And you know what? What are we doing for women in apologetics? Obviously, there's a growing uh, interest in this for women.
1: Mm-hmm. What was this? What kind of in your classes? What were about the percentage of men to women in those classes?
0: Oh, that's a good question.
1: I, Ish, I'm gonna you know?
0: say. Mm, a quarter to a third, okay. maybe, were women.
1: Okay, yeah. Okay. Which is growing tremendously right, from
0: how it was maybe 20 years ago. Maybe they had one. Yeah. So, uh, well, they, they didn't have a, not the same program, but in maybe the theology classes. A lot of these
1: programs are relatively new, I think, right? Actually, we just do yeah. the theology programs in the past. And, exactly. Yeah, okay.
0: Yeah. 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 It, it's more philosophy. fine now. Yeah. So um, after the, the first couple of summers, I would go back for my summer residency. And finally, one summer, I, I said to Craig Hazen, so what are we going to do for the women here at Biola for, for you know, doing something to help them? And he said, why don't we do an apologetics conference? And it was about that time that an, another couple of gals who I work with had acquired the rights to womeninapologetics.com, mm. which used to be, the organization used to be known as ISWA, which is the International Society of Women in Apologetics. Super long, nobody could remember <laughs> it. Uh, it was still a, um, a good organization, but it primarily was just a website which had resources of women who were you know, speaking on apologetics. Yeah. Uh, so we took it over, and th- uh, these gals asked me to be the president. And we f- did our first conference, and it's just growing. We've now had our third annual conference, and we have a great website, WomenAndApologetics In fact, we're hoping that maybe we'll do our conference here next year. At, That's what at I this hope church. too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. You know, I see. Women in apologetics is like the fastest growing area, I think, in apologetics. Hmm. And part of it, I believe, is because parents are starting to wake up yeah. to the problems of the youth exodus, mm-hmm. where Young students who grow up in the church are walking away from their faith when they go to high school, especially college. Yep. And so parents are saying, what, what can we do? What can we do? We, there's a problem. We need to do something. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that problem is we have not been doing a good job as parents equipping our kids to really get them ready for the real world assault that they're going to be faced, especially as a Christian today the persecution the harassment the discrimination the really tough deep questions yeah yeah and so we need to be able to prepare parents to have better answers and i think that means equipping the the parents and and the church helping to equip the parents and
1: yep and how do we yeah especially in trying to help equip people who feel like it's you know i mean you're coming from so many different variety of levels of education and experience and biblical understanding and biblical the you know experience just with the bible over time and so yeah trying to help folks and so people are but people seem to be really kind of digging in a bit more now understanding I think especially with that whole youth exodus thing that you're referring to Mm -hmm. that that it's it's a huge deal in Mm -hmm. the church right now and I think people are catching up late, but we're starting to catch up. Right.
0: You know, and I think some people have a misunderstanding about what apologetics even is. Yep. So I have this talk that I do and it's called apologetics, the new bad word and why we need it.
1: <laughs> That's a really good and talk. And
0: part title. of it is just to try to explain what it is and what it isn't. Yep. And I think because if I could just say this, if it's, it's, it's a field that has been predominantly Men, in the past, so they have brought an element of argument and yes. debate yes. to uh, this field of apologetics, and I think that there's a, there is a valid place for that. I'm not I'm not uh, faulting that at all. Right. But I think that um, we need conversational apologetics in our everyday mm-hmm. conversation. You know, if I'm getting my nails done and my manicurist starts talking about oh the problem of evil and suffering in the world, or you know, do I have a response? Am I able to engage her on some of the problems that she's talking about from First Peter 3.15, being ready to give answers and give a defense for why you believe Christianity is true? Yep. I, this gal at our conference this last um, month, she did a talk called Playground Apologetics. Just how to engage... Everyday moms on the playground yeah. with conversations about why we believe Christianity is true.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love that. So that's so cool that you're able to kind of bring just a different flavor. I know a lot of times if somebody's telling me about, oh, we're gonna, we wanna have this speaker come in or they're, they're kind of an apologetics person, I'm like, well, can we talk about it and just kind of make sure they're not a jerk first, you know? Because it
2: feels yes. like that's the
1: reputation. There are some uh, that we have heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know.
2: Uh, but you guys are fun. I like you guys. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, part part of that also, Eric, is that uh, you know, we we want we want people to recognize the truth and not have us get in the way because we're trying to act like we're smarter or we have know more or we're more educated. No, we're just sinners saved by grace. Mm-hmm. And apologetics, in essence, is just about truth. How do we tell people that Christianity is true? And, and the twofold application is, one, for evangelism, for mm-hmm. people who are not Christians, they don't understand Christianity, or they've rejected it possibly because of a misconception. Mm-hmm. That's our opportunity to give answers as to why their objections are, are, are not well taken and why they should reconsider. Yep. But it's also for discipleship, because so many Christians will go through deep water, and at that point they may wonder, where's God? Is it true? And if we understand that it's true, whether we believe it or not, the facts and the evidence are on our side— then we can have that blessed assurance. We can have first John five thirteen, where these things have written unto you that you may know you have eternal life. So apologetics for the Christian for assurance, for the non-Christian for evangelism to bring them to the cross of Christ. So we've got something for everybody. Yeah, that's true. I like that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that really is what I
1: think our our world needs so much is you know, in that evangelism mindset is just kind of helping people process through these things, these doubts, these skepticisms that they have. But then also, yes, yeah, so much of that discipleship, I think is so key. And, and not just with young people, but but I think maybe especially with young people where so often, you know, I've had these conversations with young people where it's like, you know, I, I think this or I'm I'm coming out real strongly with I'm pro choice. It's like, well, why? Well, I just am. Okay. You know, and it's like, okay, because the, our world is just spewing these messages so rapidly and without, and it's almost become uh, it's like trendy to think certain things you're, you're going to be on trend if you believe certain things about the world. And a lot of the things that we as believers believe according to the God's word aren't on trend right now, if you know what I'm saying, they're not, they're not the current trendy thing. And
2: so we have to break that is pretty challenging sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and so many parents who are sending their kids to the university have no idea what the, what a minefield it is, ideological minefield and so anti-Christian. And so if someone who's raised in a church, a good Bible teaching evangelical church like Calvary Church their kid can still come back one day from from the university, to say, "I'm woke," and yeah. they're thinking, "You're what? You yeah. woke up? No, I'm woke. Right. What? What does that mean?" Right. And they get into this critical theory. They've got all this, you know, uh, guilt and racial identities and all these other things that are swoping on the university campus, and they haven't heard any of that from a Christian perspective. Yes, and I think if we give people the other side, we we groom them and and and. Ground them in Scripture and let them understand that Christianity has answers to these issues. We always have. You just don't hear them on the university. Hey, maybe they won't go through the deep water. Maybe they will recognize that Christianity still has the best answers. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, what do you think are um, maybe let's let's talk a little
1: bit about some of the areas that you have specialized in, and I mean, let's start with you, Laurie, with some of this stuff, even with. Mm-hmm. With uh, like with women's issues even about this women in apologetics, like is this is some of this like I feel like you would get a little bit the way you think caught in between two worlds, um, you know, with like you got the super ultra conservatives that think you shouldn't even be speaking at all. And then you've got people kind of on the maybe the far left progressive feminists that are going to take like all the things that you would think and kind of skew them. You know, do Mm -hmm. you feel like you get sort of trapped in between all of that? Sometimes
0: I personally don't because I've worked through theologically where you know where I kind of land on on that particular issue. But in terms of the our organization, women and apologetics, Mm -hmm. I I think you're kind of hinting at the egalitarian complementarian issue. Um, And we we don't take a position one way or another on that issue. We have women who are egalitarians and women who are complementarians, and so we want to unify all all women together, not dividing over that particular issue. Um, so obviously the, the, the threshold question that would p- potentially divide is what do you do with the senior pastor and the elder's sure, position? Sure, totally, so, totally. So we, for the purpose of what we're trying to do to be able to reach as many people as possible, we're not going to let that particular issue divide us. Mm-hmm. But having said that, there are some... You know, feedback, kick back, push back, if you will. Um, I just did, um, I don't know what you call it, like a, a podcast, a video podcast for, 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 uh, for an apologetics organization. So I did it online. And from the get-go, the very first comments on the, on the live feed were, you know, what are women doing there? The women should not be you know, doing apologetics. Right, women right. shouldn't be speaking. Women shouldn't be teaching. And sadly, I've lost a few friends on Facebook, and, but they're all Christians. The ones that I lost, and they were like dear brothers who just got very upset if I even used a Bible verse. And so I thought, oh, that's I don't, you know, I think that that's sad that we can't, you know, have a conversation with one another. But yeah. that kind of, I'm just going to step back for a second sure. and see something that um, is what I believe a, a, a more global problem in the church, yeah, and that is just this growing division that we have in the church. Mm-hmm. We are really pitting ourselves one against another. I believe this. I'm right, you're wrong, and I am going to uh, tell everybody how wrong you are. Yep. Uh, we see it in politics. People are dividing over politics. Uh, we see it, of course, with the progressive Christianity on one side and the, kind of the hyper-fundamentalism you know, on the other yep. side, the other extreme. And I, I think that when Jesus said... I am the way, the truth, and the life, and the way is a narrow road, and the gate is also very narrow. I I think it's not just a reference to how to get into the eternal kingdom Mm -hmm. with God, but i think it's also a way to walk while we're here still on this earth you know of course being sanctified and being being transformed more and more into the image of god uh, into his son's image and so i think that that way is the way of love and we're if we miss that and we we forget that in our conversations, whether it's apologetics or you know whether we're talking to someone who may have a theological disagreement with us, if we don't remember love is the basis for everything that we do, <laughs> we're going to easily fall off into either side. But balancing that with truth, with justice and mercy. And forgiveness and grace. You know, we can't just pick and choose certain attributes of God or certain fruit of the Spirit that we we like and then we don't like the rest of it. We really have to embrace all of who God is. So, I mean, that's kind of a side answer to what what you were asking me. But so, first of all, that's, I just want to say that about, you know, the women and apologetics, because we do get that kind of pushback. But what what I think women can bring to this is something that's very different from men and whether you're egalitarian or complementary, and I think that everybody would be able to embrace this, that like for example, at our Women in Apologetics conference we had a lot of uh, topics for moms in particular, whether you have little kids or kids at college, you know, how to reach um, Gen Z, how are we yeah. going to engage our kids in conversations when they don't seem to even care about the conversation, right? <laughs> yeah. So how do we even get to <laughs> yeah. engage them? How do we talk with someone and reason with them and and wanna uh, present evidence and logic, persuasion, when they don't care right. about that, right? We're living in a post-truth era where... Uh, okay, that's fine. That's maybe it's true, but I don't care.
1: Right. Right. And, and even just a minimal attention span era, yeah. you know, just like, yeah. Ugh, I don't have this conversation. That sounds boring and serious. Like yeah. I want to play with my phone. You yeah.
0: Know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so one of the things that. that I see women bringing to yeah. this is we have women who are doing apologetics through music, huh. who are doing it through art, through storytelling And I think that we need to be a little bit more creative about how we are reaching the younger generation. It's like Jesus talking to the woman at the well about water, Mm -hmm. something in common. And I think we need to learn how to address the younger generation and find what they're interested in to draw them in so that we can have engaging conversations that are genuine, you know, authentic interest in what they are interested in and then engage them at their level
1: yeah that's good that's good i remember yeah we can't hit i remember getting hit with words my you know when i was in college in jp moreland's class and you you know for the first time when you hear words like the kalam cosmological argument that sounds just so daunting and it sounds like how could i ever even this is a foreign language you're speaking. So you can't be doing that to your seven-year-old, you know?
0: No. Let me just throw one thing in here, uh, Eric. For, for those people that might be interested or curious about apologetics, how do I get started? Because you don't have to get a, a master's degree like John and I have from Talbot. You don't have to. You right. you can start with getting apologetics books. There are a lot of materials for kids. And start reading to your kids and you'll learn along the way. Just mm-hmm. staying one mm-hmm. step ahead of them. So start reading the kids' books. And then eventually as they get older, then you'll be moving into the high school <laughs> books and the college books, yeah, but that's smart. You start that way.
1: Yep. I remember even when I was like a younger youth pastor. The, there there's that Josh McDowell book called Don't Check Your Brains at the Door. And I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's just like a, it's got pictures and it's very, it's it's written, I think, for almost like middle schoolers, you know? And it was really <laughs> helpful for me when I was studying because I'm just like, ah, this breaks it down to its most simplest form. So mm-hmm. it's like, okay, if this can help you, that can, that could be, I like that. It's a good way to do that. Re- read the kids' books, then the teenage books, exactly. and then the grown-up books. That's
0: right, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you'll work your way in.
1: Oh, that's good, that's good. So what do you guys think, like, what do you think are, uh um, um, maybe a couple of the more important issues for Christians to be preparing themselves for. If if we're if the whole thing of apologetics is to be prepared to give a defense, right, to be able to be prepared to give answers, um, like what do you think we need to be prepared for? John, Your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, Eric, let me follow up uh, oh, sure. before I address that specifically, yeah. but I think it relates, and that is Lori representing perhaps kind of a new wave for the church, and that is that women are taking a more active role responding to Scripture and becoming yeah. those who can train kids, who can speak at conferences. And it perhaps takes a little bit of reorientation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I have someone like Lori, who's a, a great lawyer, a good apologist, uh, you might wonder, gee, what's the dynamic like in the Stewart household? you got two <laughs> yes, lawyers there. Yes, that's what... Well, we don't have dinner and say, Past said peas. Objection. No, it's not like that. Although, when we talk about things like submission, I think it was like a week ago, she came crawling to me on her hands and knees and said, get out from under that bed, you warm, I'm going to hit you again. I, dare. Oh, I, I have to I, put
0: up with this, Eric. Can you imagine? I have to
2: always tell uh, that, that one. so good. But, <laughs> but it, it gives me a chance because I have a wife who has paid attention. And I'm just amazed at times where you know, I've had this theological background for decades now, and now we're talking at that level on contemporary current issues. I'm thinking, wow. my wife is like right in there with me in this, and I thought this is just a great partnership. So, uh, That's cool. uh, I, I've been blessed by that. Yes. What do I find most important? About two and a half years ago, I was thinking of what, what should my next book be, mm-hmm. and I thought, well. God has spoken the scriptures. That's the most important thing that God has revealed himself through scripture. And I thought that's kind of broad. New Testament, God has revealed himself through Jesus in the New Testament. Then I thought, even that's too broad. So I focused on the Gospels. Did Jesus really say and do? Now, we believe that. He he said and did those things in the Gospels, but what's the evidence? And the skeptics are saying, well, we're not sure Jesus lived. We're not sure who wrote the Gospels. We're not sure they've been changed over the years. We're not sure archaeology supports them. We're not sure there aren't lost Gospels. So I address all those in the book. But I think, how can we defend the faith Tell people Jesus really is who he claim to be, as we find on the gospels. Yeah,
1: I think that that sounds, I think, really great to me because I think so many people will have some sort of commonality around Jesus or common like people feel good about Jesus, Mm -hmm. right? You know, even people that don't don't believe, so to speak, in Christianity, they think Jesus is a good dude, right? Mm -hmm. And (laughs) that's true, right? So hey, let's build off that in some way, but to say, okay, no, but you know, uh, is Jesus really who he says he is? And then can we trust where we are reading that from? Right. And so I know your book, I'm holding a copy of it right now in defense of the gospels, the case for reliability. And I think in this day and age, the reliability of the scriptures in general, which I like how you kind of honed in though, just on the gospels is such a huge issue in my view, because Without it, it feels like it, you, people throw that out so easily, and then sort of, what do we have to build
2: upon, right? Uh, and, and Eric, the way I laid the book out too, I'm a trial lawyer, and so if I'm going to make an argument to a jury, I can't tell them I feel, I want, <sighs> I, I I hope. No, I got to give them evidence, yeah. and so I try to give the main evidences for each particular objection or question that people might have. And if we can simplify, just like you talking about that book that showed the pictures, if we can break this down and make it simple and not have to be some ivory tower concept, then I think everybody would feel a little more comfortable getting their feet wet and addressing some of these questions when a skeptic may ask, or even a, a, a Christian may ask, why do we trust the gospels why do we trust the bible and they'll be ready to give an answer yeah so what are what's the let's let's talk let's get into it a little bit um what are the main
1: objections that you feel like people are hearing or that you've written about in here that objections to the
2: gospels or to the, the scriptures well i i address six of the main questions, and I think those are fairly all-encompassing, is when were the Gospels written? And some of the skeptics, the people who have a lower view of the Gospels would say toward the end of the first century, or even into the second century, and all the evidence militates to the fact that... They were written early, with, yeah. within the, the same amount of time when eyewitnesses were still alive mm-hmm. and people would have had a remembrance of what went on. Now, I'm old enough to remember things like when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And that was 50, what will be 56 years, 57 years yeah. uh, come November 22nd. And I can remember like it was yesterday because I know right where I was. The more emotional event, the more unusual an event, the more we have almost like a photographic remembrance. So I'll save this for the people listening. 9-11. You know right where you were when you first heard about it, and that day is indelibly etched. So things like that. Who wrote the Gospels? And I argue as to the traditional authors being the only candidates, and there's no other traditions that survive of anybody else writing them. Perhaps one of the big ones that now, because of things like Nat Geo, the Gospel of of uh judas, judas or the gospel of yeah. mary the gospel of thomas, thomas yeah. what i tell people is these so-called lost gospels i deal with that i say they're sort of like the breakfast cereal grape nuts <laughs> grape nuts is neither grapes nor is it nuts <laughs> <laughs> the lost gospels are neither lost nor are the gospels they're mm-hmm. really late second to fourth century Uh, fiction written by either cultists called Gnostics who didn't believe in the Jesus of history or written by Christians as a substitute for the salacious dime store secular novels of the day and making Jesus the character. Hmm. So even secular uh, New Testament scholars would say these so-called lost gospels add nothing to our understanding of the history Of the true Jesus. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, all right. So we've got people saying that and like, because people would say other objections, right? That Jesus was not really like historical character even, right? Mm -hmm. Like
0: the Jesus myth.
1: Yeah. Just a myth. You've got people saying that Jesus is, I don't, and I know you're not necessarily defensive. The gospels isn't necessarily defensive. Or unless you're going into it and you're in here, defense of the deity of Christ specifically, uh,
2: that's actually the that's book the I wrote before. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> that, that, which is, which is called more than a prophet: the identity yeah. of Jesus. But uh, in in addressing the issue of of who was Jesus, did he exist? So I do go into that some in our book in the book because we have outside of the new testament by the way, new testament's history the gospels are historical books yes they're biographies of jesus so we don't want to discount them but even outside of that we've got first century testimony from josephus mm-hmm. who references jesus at least twice we've got early second century from roman historian tacitus and suetonius so you've got a whole uh, panoply of uh, testimony outside of the New Testament, even a, a Roman governor, uh, Pliny the Younger, from writing as the governor of Bithynia, writing back to the emperor around the year A.D. 110, talking about Christians and Jesus. Mm-hmm. So. For somebody who say Jesus never lived, well, you could have fooled the Roman historians who were alive at the time, or of just a few years after that, because they all present him as this character who started this movement that eventually swept the whole uh, Western world.
1: Yeah, yeah. What? If, well, what? What if they just made like made all this up though? You know, they kind of faked it later now,
0: everybody <laughs> e- everybody faked it everybody made which i know
1: it you're up. kind of already refuting there yeah but,
2: i would uh, say and just because someone's paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you now. So, so, uh, <laughs> now so at some point people have to acknowledge for example when i talk to muslims because yeah. muslims believe jesus was a prophet and virgin born well why isn't he more than that because in essence It goes against what Muhammad presented. At some point, if you talk about the history and the facts, whether it comes from a Christian theologian or an atheist who studies the life of Jesus, a Muslim has to make a choice. Am I going to go with 99.9% of the scholars and historians and say Jesus was this historical figure as presented in the New Testament, or am I going to follow Muhammad? And at some point, they're going to have to make that decision and realize perhaps they weren't told the truth hmm. when they read the, the Quran or when they listened to their Iman talk about who Jesus was.
1: Yeah. How do you deal with um, some of what people would call, you know, like the differences between the different gospels or like the the variations of the story of the resurrection or whatever Mm -hmm. that might be? That's a big objection.
2: Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, as a lawyer, I have represented people who've been in accidents. And sometimes uh, accidents, uh, if people are standing on four corners of an intersection, some may emphasize, I heard the squealing of the tires. Another, I heard the sound. Another may say, well, I saw where the cars ended up, and the other one was I ran to the scene and helped somebody who was hurt. Well, they all are telling a different version, but it's the same general account. Mm -hmm. So when we look at accounts such as for the resurrection of Jesus, two angels or one angel? Look, the key is Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, And whether there was one or two angels, those peripheral details, I think there's ways that we can talk about reconciling those. But as an apologist, I try not to get bogged down with the minutia and say, look, what's the key to the story? Jesus said he was going to go to a cross and die and rise from the dead. And the evidence leads us to the conclusion that that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So that's the big story. And I don't try to get bogged down in, in trying to defend every particular uh, objection people might have when they say, well, you know, how do we reconcile that? Well, there are people have done that, uh, but let's just look at the big picture. Did Jesus live? Yeah. Did he die on a cross? Yep. That's what the evidence says. Did he rise from the dead? Yep. That's where the evidence leads us. And,
0: you know, if all four stories were told the exact same way, saying the exact same thing, that really smells of conspiracy. Mm -hmm. So I think it actually would... Undermine the authenticity of the four stories, or,
2: or even a, a more common word today, collusion. Yes, collusion is the big <laughs> word. Yeah, yeah, but that isn't that
1: something. I mean, for you guys as trial attorneys, and like, isn't that something that about when you get eyewitness testimony that that is, if it's two exactly the same, it's less um,
0: less reliable. Less reliable. That's absolutely right. Uh,
2: yeah. yeah, Eric, I was just reading a book the other day that's not in my book, but it was just talking about how within the four gospels. Yeah, how you have Matthew, the tax collector, but you've got Mark, who wrote Peter's recollections, according to uh, early second century Christians. And then you've got John, who was a fisherman. So Peter and John being fishermen. Well, Matthew, Mark, and John talk about the Sea of Galilee, and they they call it a sea, S-E-A. Well, it's really 60 square miles. It's really a a huge lake. Well, Luke is not a fisherman, and he's not from that area. He was from Antioch. He calls it a lake. Huh, and so yeah. just even there geographically helps us understand that they're, they're giving the right terms for the people that we believe wrote those. Luke being a physician, not being a fisherman, uses different terminology. And there's many, many things like that all the way through the Gospels that showed that the writers of the Gospels knew the culture, the politics, the religion, the geography— bodies of water, all of that. And that's all on our side. That's all the evidence. Unfortunately, we don't make that available enough. This is what we need to teach our kids and preach from the pulpit. Yeah. And that's probably even needs to come down to an understanding maybe a better
1: understanding of what it means that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit wasn't confused about it being a lake or a sea, but the Holy Spirit also didn't just place these guys in a trance and make their, their hand, you know, move with a pen on a paper or whatever. Right. right. Like it's, that's not what we mean when we say that. Mm-hmm. And I think so sometimes, cause I think like you've got people who feel like that's what that means to be inspired by the Holy Spirit means that they're, their hand was moving as they were writing this in an uncontrolled way by their own mind. But it's this combination of being this, of the Holy Spirit working through them and also their own experience and, you know, their own life. Right? Absolutely. Right.
2: Their own style, vocabulary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was not the, people call that manual dictation theory where, okay. yeah, they are in some kind of trance. No, that's not what we find at all. We find people writing these accounts using their style. And you look at Luke, he was more educated in... If you're studying Greek, you don't want to start with the first four verses of Luke chapter one, the prologue, because it has these huge, long participles that would make <laughs> your head spin because he was an, a very uh, educated person. And that's consistent with who we believe wrote those gospels.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's what's so interesting about, because we do believe that the Bible is inerrant. I believe that. But like, that doesn't, the sea lake thing, for example, since we're on this is is an example of kind of, we, we can even in the sort of more conservative viewpoint of that, we can kind of get confused about what we mean and then we can build a false tower like or a false foundation. I think sometimes that then can get like knocked out from under a college student when they go away Mm -hmm. to school Mm -hmm. and somebody just shows them all this stuff. Uh, We had Brett Kunkel on the podcast um, just like a few weeks ago and he was talking about that. In my experience at UC Santa Barbara, both of us went off to secular universities our freshman year and just got hammered by our professors but like, there were certain ways that I think some of that stuff was like a, was a false foundation I had built up,
0: mm-hmm. you know? I experienced the same thing, Eric, when I went off to yeah. college. So my, my very first year, it, it was a combination of three classes I took. It was Western Civ, mm-hmm. which taught me that Christianity was just an ancient myth built upon earlier myths. Right. Um, and so I thought, wow, I never heard this before. So I started to, you know, shape oh, yeah. my own beliefs. Um, and then I took a political science class. So it was taught by just a very liberal professor who was just really attacking all conservative ideals. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I argued with him, but I still left very shaken after that class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my third one was a literature class. And some of the reading that we had was, I'll just say, very pro-feminist. Mm-hmm. And so that Really ha- helped to shape my own uh, beginning of my left leanings because I did walk away from my faith for a number of years, questioning everything. Never denied Christianity, but really, well, don't all roads maybe eventually all lead to God? You know, are, aren't there common things in all yeah. faiths? And so if you just try to do the best you can because there's no perfect people, you know, aren't you just isn't that going to matter in in, in eternity? Yeah, you know, so it wasn't until I went through a, a just a you know personal tragedy in my own life and realized I I need something on solid ground which I can stand. I can't. I don't just want to trust my own reasoning and thinking. And so I went through a radical transformation. Now I can look back and see I was changing my worldview. Mm. You know, that's what some people how some people would describe it. But I wanted to examine everything from the only rock the source of truth and that's the scripture so just one by one i started examining all my ideas and assumptions that i had my feminist ideology you know my my uh, views on uh, abortion my views on money, stewardship, government—I uh, I, was—I called myself a socialist at one at one time. Believe <laughs> it or not, I was like, "Man, I wonder if I'm a communist." No, I don't really think I'm a communist. You're very popular, but I—I <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, that's how far left I really was. But eventually, God was able to redeem me and bring me back. And so, when I—I I still remember reading a case for faith mm-hmm. and a case for Christ by, by Lee Strobel, yep. and I. I thought, there are solid reasons for believing that Christianity is true. It's not just true because I want it to be true. It's not just true because I've had an experience, but those things are true. I have had an experience, and and Mm -hmm. I do want it to be true, Mm -hmm. but it's true apart from those things, that Mm -hmm. there is objective reasons for believing that Christianity is true, so if, if I could just answer, I don't know how much time we have left, but I and want to be able time. to say yeah. one thing before we end, because you, you talked about you know some of the big uh, issues that we might be facing as Christians. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the biggest issues I see is just the attack on our identity, who we are made in the image of God. Hmm. The Imago Day, I I've talked a, a little bit about that, I think it, <clears throat> excuse me, undermines um Or under is kind of like the foundation of a lot of the problems that we see in society. I believe it's a problem with the abortion issue. It's a problem with our LGBT issue. Now we have transgenderism on the rise. But a lot, um, even with critical theory, the whole the racial issue, the oppressed oppressor groups, it's a it's confusing who we are as a person. So if 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 a person just identifies primarily number one by their whatever their perceived gender is, right, Mm -hmm. or whether they're identifying based on their race, they start to see the world through those eyes. If someone feels like they are um, a victim and they're a part of an oppressed group, then they start to look at the world through those eyes. They now take on that as their primary identity. Mm -hmm. So I really see that this is just a subtle attack of the enemy to attack Imago Day, that we are made in the image of God and we have value because of that. Yeah. You now, I talk about women's rights and human rights, and I've you know been able to talk about human rights in Indonesia, which is just an wow. absolutely yeah. amazing opportunity, but Christianity is the only uh, worldview, if you will, that offers an explanation for the problem which is our sin nature, Mm -hmm. and a solution, and Mm -hmm. that is Christ changing us. And he's the only one that can do us. When we surrender and let the Holy Spirit come in and and just clean house and start changing our lives to let we are willing to cooperate with the Spirit to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ, then that's how we're going to start treating people better. We start living really united and with peace and in love um, but in a, right now, it's it's a battle on on humanity. On, identity, on, Yeah,
1: absolutely. And it's because it's interesting. Like I, I was curious what you think, because like, I know people want to be able to celebrate their uniqueness. Yes. Right. You know, yeah. even like the beauty of their ethnicity or their race or their gender or whatever. Right. But like. But there's something different where that gets skewed to like how it affects how they feel like they are between them and God or kind of, you know, like how do, how do you think someone can appreciate their uniqueness while also living out in this way that you're describing?
0: Yeah. You raise a really uh, important issue and I think we only find it in Christianity. We only find it in the picture of the Trinity in huh. the Godhead. If we are created in the image of God. We know as Christians that God is tri- triune nature, yeah. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're three and yet one. We don't really quite know how that all works together, but we know from the Scripture that that's true. We mm-hmm. know that they're one, so there's something that unites them that is one core essence, but we know that somehow they're three different people, if you will. And so there is there is a separateness, if you will, as well. Yeah. You know, The Father um, sent the Son, and the Son prayed to the Father, and... Yep. And Jesus said, after I go, the Holy Spirit's going to come. So <clears throat> there's like a separateness, but there's also a, a, a unity as one as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, I think that we see that picture in husband and wife. I think it's the only other relationship that kind of gives us that huh, picture yeah, of yeah. the two. But when the two come together in sexual union and marriage, mm-hmm. that you become one. There's something... I don't want to say mystical, but mysterious that happens, yeah. and the two are joined. Which is, you know, if you understand that, then I think it helps us to understand God. So we should be celebrating differences because God made us all different. Mm-hmm. You know, we have different DNA, we have different fingerprints. So we are mm-hmm. all created different, right? But at the same time, so he he calls us to unity. So how do we be unified while we're different? And I think the only thing that unifies us is having the spirit of God and that when we have the spirit of God, now we're able to reflect God, which is what an image bearer does is reflect the nature of God. That's how we do it is through the spirit that binds us all.
1: That's good. That's good. I think that's so important in our day because you're right. It is so like on the forefront of everyone's mind and everything you read about and everything you talk about and, you know, even watching the Oscars last night. And it's just like all about, um, you know, whether it was gender or race or whatever. And it's like, if that stuff's not being acknowledged enough, and then you want to acknowledge it and I want to be kind and, you know, (laughs) all this, and you get kind of caught in between all of, you know, some of that. But whereas Christ is saying, Hey, look, we are all one. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: You know, and some of the deception about what we see, like you, you know, you you called attention to the Academy Awards. I watched it yeah. too. I, I haven't watched it in years, but I w- was just drawn to it last night for some reason. I wanted to see. You know, my my bachelor's degree was in theater art. so I was in kind of that Hollywood Hollywood world for a while in a yeah. very lukewarm way, <laughs> not in a very exciting <laughs> way. But yeah, I wanted to see what the culture is like, and mm-hmm. watching the show and and i was sad about about some of the things that happened some of the things that were said but i think what makes it really confusing probably for the general viewer is that there's some a little bit of truth in what they're saying totally. there's a little bit of truth in critical theory and in even in feminist ide- ideology if you will yes. because there have been and we see historically there's there are reports of the mistreatment of absolutely. human beings and one I, another.
1: I want women directors to get their their due. You know, yeah, yeah. absolutely, and all that. Yeah. So good. you know
0: we don't we don't want to ignore yeah. the wrongs that have happened in the past, but on the other hand, so then okay, so what what's the solution? Well, I don't think the solution is making a celebrity out of victimhood. Right. You know, like the Me Too movement is just it's celebrating victims. I, I want to celebrate survivors, but I don't want to celebrate victims because now that just kind of creates like a whole, um, you know, idol for, for people to hold themselves up that now it's just competing. Who, who has the best oppressed story? Because right. that's what we value. So, right. you know, there's a little nugget of truth, but I think that's kind of what um, you know, a lot of the lies in this world are not outright lies. It's just a, it's, it's truth, but with lies woven in, right? We know the enemy masquerades as an angel of light. Yes. It looks good. There's something about it that's attractive and maybe an element of truth, but the the lies corrupt it so that it's no longer true.
2: Yeah. By the way, our case in point there would be the, the, this concept of diversity. When people think of diversity, it's the optics. It's racial diversity. Instead of uh, belief diversity or ideological diversity, and I had on my radio show years ago one of the lawyers who was on the O.J. Simpson case. He was the dean of a law school, and there was a vacancy on the, on the state supreme court. And he wrote an article saying, oh, "I think we need to have like an Asian because we've got uh, uh, you know a black and one blah blah blah," and I brought him on the show and said, "Why?" are you dealing with ethnicity or gender? Why not ideology? And I pointed out there was a black female judge, Janice Rogers Brown, who is not my race, not my gender, but I identify more with her. because She's a Christian than I would some white male. Yeah. So I said, well, how come we don't deal with belief diversity, values diversity, instead of merely racial skin color diversity? And there was this long pause. And he said... Hmm, I'm gonna have to think about that. Yeah. Because we don't think about that. Same thing in Hollywood. What's diversity in Hollywood? Well, you gotta have the right number of sexual orientations. What about Christians in Hollywood? Right. Man, you don't dare even speak up. So, diversity means people who are diverse that we like, and inclusion means including all ideas that we agree with. But unfortunately, Christianity is the one on the outside looking in today. We have to remind people. No, Christianity, we just want a level playing field. Let Christianity have its voice, and we believe the Holy Spirit will do his work to bring people to the cross. Yeah,
1: that's interesting. I do think that you're right about how we don't, surround ourselves with people of ideological diversity. And probably even us, we're guilty of that as Christians too, right? That it's its easy to just kind of keep around us people that agree with us. Um, and and it's easy even then for us to put people around us that are of different ethnicities or different uh, genders or whatever, but like then to just be able to, uh, but we all think still, we all still think the same, which, you know, are, are mostly the same. And, and it's, we need our brothers and sisters, obviously, you know, mm-hmm. in those moments, but uh, I'd love to see a world where you can get different ideological, you know, like diversity, uh, people have different viewpoints around each other to be able to talk about this stuff more often. Um,
0: yeah, we're not gonna do much good if we're just in our holy huddle all yeah. the time, right? We, yeah. I mean, Jesus had his three, he had his 12, he had the crowd that followed him, but then he went out. Yep. He went out and he met broken people who were lost yep. so that he could minister to them. So I think that there's value for us to have our network, our small group, if you will, you know, at at church and then our church community, the body of believers who we connect with to encourage one another, to exhort one another, but then to go out. And if we're not rubbing elbows, so to speak, or, you know, shoulders with people who are lost and broken are we really being salt and light to the world?
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, you're right. That's what we got. That's the hard part, putting ourselves in those situations and and having friends that think differently. And I think that's great. Well, you know, I wish we could keep going and talk about all these like just hit more issue after issue after issue. But what's cool is that if people want to keep hitting issue after issue, they can come hang out with you guys on a regular basis, right? Sunday
2: mornings at 11 o'clock. Tell us a little bit about your life group that you're teaching. Yeah, Eric, we uh, started this up in the fall, kind of late fall. And so, uh, and we had a little bit of a hiatus in January. We picked it up again and we we're calling it intelligent faith slash the cutting edge. Yeah. And really, we're focusing on uh, aspects of scripture and of Christianity that will equip people to be able to engage. And I think we have forgotten that we need 21st century uh, answers. Uh, to 21st century questions, but we're using methods from the 19th and 20th centuries to try to reach the modern mind. We can't do that. (laughs) So we're talking about how do we reach people? How do we understand our own faith? So the focus is is really it's apologetics. It's evidence, but we'll do it through teaching scripture by giving topical lessons and having fun doing that uh, life group. And I'll tell you, I've already found diversity there in terms of age. We have all ages. We've got you know, Hispanics, and we got people who are Anglos, and mm-hmm. people uh, from... New
0: believers and long-time believers. Yeah.
2: One from Nigeria who's comes. Uh, so that's cool. th- th- yeah, that's, that. that's real life. Yep. And and I, I like seeing that type of of cultural diversity here at the church, and it also shows up in our classroom. And I think it's B205? Is at the... Upstairs, uh, in, the upstairs in the B building. Upstairs in the B building on Sundays at, at 11 yeah. <laughs> o'clock and uh, we're having a good time. Yeah, that's
1: so cool. So I, I love it. People are enjoying that kind of conversation that even we're having here. You can continue to have conversations like that and be part of your guys' life. Even I'm, I've got in front of me a couple books uh, by John Stewart here in defense of the gospels, the case for reliability, and then more than a prophet. That's the one on the identity of Jesus from the Bible, the Quran and early sources, which I think is pretty interesting for people to be thinking about. And I think a lot of us more and more and more are having, um, relationships maybe that we feel like we never had before with people, um, that are Muslim. And, and, uh, I think like, you know, there's a sort of a world of Orange County where a while back, you just, you would never talk to someone that was, you know, from that background of Islam, but now we all are. And so it's important to kind of shore up some of your thoughts on, on that as well. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you can check those out. You can buy those on Amazon. Uh, also check out women in apologetics.com uh, as well as your guys website too, is intelligentfaith.com. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. intelligentfaith.com. Mm-hmm. So yeah, check out more about John and Lori Stewart there. And I just want to say thank you you so much for having this conversation, and we're so huh. grateful to have folks like you part of our church. Hey, Erica, it was fun. Thanks for inviting yeah, us. Yeah, a lot of fun. Thanks. All right, and thanks for listening to the Calvary Life Podcast.
0: Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Life Podcast. If you enjoyed our show this week, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. If you want to learn more about Calvary Church or share any of your thoughts, check us out on our website at calvarylife.org or find us on one of our social media accounts. on Instagram at Calvary underscore church Facebook at Calvary Church of Santa Ana and Twitter at Calvary Life.